Hi guys, this is your host Trey and Jamie with the Dream Team Podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss everything about anesthesia and provide you with an easy way to earn continuing education credits. Thanks for listening today. So, so let's, let's get, get to it. it. Hi guys, welcome back to the Dream Team Podcast. This is a podcast where we discuss everything about anesthesia and provide you with an easy way to earn continuing education credits. Thanks for listening today. So today we have Jamie Huffman and Christopher Humpston. Good morning. Morning. And we have a topic, fat embolism syndrome, that we will discuss today. Correct? Yeah. Yes, sir. So tell me, what is fat embolism syndrome? Fat embolism syndrome is a serious manifestation of fat embolism. It can cause multi-system dysfunction, including respiratory, cardiovascular, pulmonary insufficiencies, and hematologic alterations. So how often do we see this? Well, we see it, fat embolism syndrome, we see that fairly rarely. The occurrence of fat embolism syndrome is about 1 to 29%, but we see almost 100% of trauma patients In patients undergoing major orthopedic surgery, they have circulating fat emboli. And the fat emboli are circulating fat macroglobules in systemic and or pulmonary vasculature. And those can occur as a result of trauma, major orthopedic surgery, and liposuction. And then there's fat embolism, which is when the fat emboli snowball or shower and pass into the bloodstream and lodge into a blood vessel fat embolism occurrence rate is less than 1%. So fat embolism syndrome is a serious manifestation of fat embolism. So fat embolism occurs less than 1%, and then you take the fat embolism syndrome, which can occur from that small percentage. The syndrome can happen 1% to 29% of the time. And it has a fairly significant mortality rate, 5 to 15%. So when we do see it, we don't see it very often, but you should just keep it in the back of your mind that it can happen, especially in the patient population, including traumas and large bone, orthopedic surgery, and even liposuction. There's some non-traumatic causes of fat embolism syndrome, or FES, like pancreatitis. CPR can do it. Diabetes. High-dose steroid therapy. Some sickle cell disease. Soft tissue trauma, but those only account for about 5%. When we first started this project and reviewing literature, I found it interesting because I don't think I was ever taught that there is a fat embolism syndrome. Maybe it's one of those things because I've been out of school almost 11 years that I I had forgotten and once learned. In school, we're taught about venous air embolisms and how to manage those in the OR. We're taught about how to manage a patient who has a fatty emboli. But I never really thought of it as a syndrome that has a constellation of all these derangements that Jamie just mentioned. So I found that very interesting. One part I found interesting was the fact that, you know, you guys found that 100% of patients actually have some circulating fat emboli. Yeah, nobody really knows about that, I don't think. When when we started researching, we saw that and we were like, oh my gosh, that is crazy that we have these. Yeah. I always thought happening. if you have them, <laughs> then you're going to have something clinically bad happen. But most of them, nothing bad really happens to the patient. And a, a lot of that, those numbers were taken from studies where they looked at 
TEE and, and transthoracic echo during orthopedic cases. And we actually talked about doing a study in, in the pediatric population, which I think would be interesting mm -hmm. to see if pediatric patients have the same problem as adults. Absolutely. So you guys do have a case report that you did, right? Yeah. And it's on this very topic, and you guys have presented before at one of the AANA conferences? In Boston. In Boston. Very good. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this, this case involves a healthy 15-year-old male who was struck by a car while riding his bike in the late afternoon in the summertime. He was fairly healthy. He just had a history of ADHD and some recreational marijuana use. He was positive for that when he showed up in the ER with his concussion and nasal fracture and a closed displaced fracture of the left femoral shaft. They did an x-ray. It was negative and a brain MRI. Also, nothing was found during that. His cervical spine was cleared and he remained hemodynamically stable and an IM nailing was scheduled for the next day. They placed him in traction and he was transferred to the floor until he had surgery the following day. Okay, so he was, I guess, deemed stable enough not to do the procedure right away. Right. Is this common practice? I think a lot of times it is. They will wait and put the patient in traction and not do the surgery right away. I'm not sure how often that happens. and But the interesting thing is, is with fat embolism syndrome, a lot of patients display delayed clinical manifestations anywhere from 24 to 72 hours after the initial insult. And nobody knows why some people develop it and some don't. But it adds an interesting situation since he waited overnight in traction and didn't have his surgery right away for his femur fixation. So it just primes them for that window of time. Yeah, sets it up. Yeah, it, it'd be an interesting conversation or question to ask the, the orthopedic trauma team because I would think you would want to repair the fracture as quick as possible, but not being a trauma surgeon, you know, they made the decision to wait. Maybe that's a future discussion with the Dream Team podcast. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so who actually had this case? Did one of you guys yeah. do this case? Yeah, I did. So the next day, his vitals were stable. His hemoglobin was fine. It was 14. Hematocrit was 40. Platelets were 144. He was satting fine, had a normal temp. Heart rate was 110. His blood pressure was 90 over 50. Fairly normal vitals. So he went to the OR and he had a standard trauma induction. He got two of Versed, even though he was appropriately NPO. We did an RSI for trauma reasons. He was pre-oxygenated. He got fentanyl, lidocaine, rock, propofol. Not necessarily in that order. He was intubated, easy intubation. Breath sounds were confirmed, all that jazz. And we did a femoral nerve block and proceeded with the case. He was positioned on the fracture table. His blood pressure was a little lower prior to incision. It was 80 over 50, so he got an IV fluid bolus of LR. And he was put on isofluorine for the maintenance of the surgery. And his FiO2 was decreased to 50% with a mixture of oxygen and air. In about 30 minutes after the incision, 
Blood pressure went down to 70 over 40. Gave a little bit of phenylephrine to bump it up. And followed it with another dose because it was pretty transient increase. Then we gave him 250 of albumin, thinking maybe he needed some colloid instead or in addition to the crystalloid we were giving. And at that time, he probably had about a liter and a half of LRN. EBL that far into the case was fairly minimal, maybe 200 at the, that time. Nothing significant for this average size kiddo. He was about 60 kilos. The surgical team was notified that his blood pressure was kind of sagging a little bit and that we were giving him a few interventions. And at that time, when we notified the surgical team, they started to ream the femur. And within a few minutes of reaming, his blood pressure started to decrease again. He got a couple more boluses of phenylephrine. We turned down the ISO. His paralytic was maintained. We decided to get a peripheral blood sample just to see what the H&H was. And at that time, suddenly his oxygen saturation went from 99% to 93%, and his end title dropped from 35 to 21, then to 16, then to zero, all very quickly. Mm. Immediately noticed that and put him on 100% FiO2, and has noted that his respiratory compliance had decreased significantly. And breath sounds were auscultated, and our endotracheal tube was checked for obstruction. There was no obstruction, and his blood pressure was 60 over 40. That peripheral blood sample came back. His hemoglobin was 8.5. The surgical team was notified of what we were doing and what was happening, and we asked them to stop working, and we called for help to come into the room. So you were able to, you were able to hear breath sounds, or you were? We, we were able to hear breath sounds. We were trying to rule out bronchospasm, obstructed endo- endotracheal tube, and go from there. But yes, we were able to hear breath sounds. So help came to the room, and at that time, you know, he was hypotensive. We were feeling his pulse, and we weren't really able to palpate a radial pulse. He had a weak intermittent carotid pulse. His EKG displayed sinus tack, so we were determining that the patient was in PEA, and then his blood pressure completely we were unable to get one. It was cycling and we weren't able to get a blood pressure. So we gave him a milligram of epi IV and working on another IV to be placed and A-line was being placed at that time and more albumin was given. Red blood cells were initiated. Fairly soon after that milligram of epi without compressions after that epi was given, he had return of spontaneous circulation and his blood pressure came up to 120 over 60 and he looked good for a minute. And then a few minutes after that, about five minutes after that first dose of epi, his blood pressure dropped again, A-line flattened, and title decreased. The monitor read sinus tack, and we determined he went into PEA again. So he got another milligram of epi, and that brought his blood pressure up to 150 over 90. We could palpate a pulse. Heart rate was 110. We obtained an intra-op 12 lead, 
and it showed ST depression in inferior anterolateral leads, T-wave inversion in the inferior leads, and an incomplete right bundle branch block. We got another sample of blood, and his hemoglobin was down to 7.8, and platelets were 99. And at that point in time, he had already had one unit of RBCs in when we were transfusing another unit. He also got bicarb and some calcium chloride based on the ABG results that we pulled from his peripheral sample. So there was some discussion among the surgical and anesthesia teams, and we mutually mutually agreed to abort the surgical procedure and obtain some stabilization. We decided to transport the patient to the ICU intubated and sedated for further observation. He just required one more small dose of epi upon transport for hypotension, and we had a high suspicion that he had fat embolism and subsequent fat embolism syndrome based on the symptomology that he was showing us. I think you guys did a great job of quickly treating and recognizing kind of in the face of an unknown problem in the OR. It sounds like you guys did a really great job of managing that. Yeah, it was it was nice to have that rapid response and help and trying to assess the situation and communication was ideal in that situation. That's great. So after we got to the PICU, they obtained some more labs and they actually got a venous Doppler on his legs. They got another 12 lead, a chest CT. They did a transthoracic echo. The Doppler and the CT did not confirm a diagnosis of a PE or fatty embolic event, but they did not rule it out. His labs revealed a lower hemoglobin, 5.4, and a positive D-dimer. Troponins were rising. The TTE revealed mild septal wall hypokinesis and mild decrease in LV systolic function. And the 12 lead showed normal sinus rhythm with T-wave abnormality. The patient was stable overnight, and he was extubated the following morning. He didn't require any other pressors or any other interventions. After he was extubated, they did another set of labs, and his hemoglobin was 9, and his platelets were 120. And a repeat 12-lead after extubation showed normal sinus rhythm. And then the following day, he had another TTE, and that showed normal RV and LV systolic function and normal wall motion. So three days after his initial surgery and insult, he returned to the OR for completion of his surgical fixation without any incident. And then he was discharged home two days after that with an uneventful recovery. Now, you might not remember, I, I don't, but the lowest his hemoglobin reached was the 5.4. Yeah. That was after he was transfused, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he was transfused. With two units. Two units of PRBCs, and then he just continued to drop. Yeah. But we now know, based on all the literature and other case reports we've read, that, that a, a trending downward for at least, what, two days almost is part of the FES. Yes, So, Chris, we mentioned before we don't know why some people develop FES and why some do. There are three main theories, and if you could enlighten us. Yes, I have my textbook, thankfully. (laughs) The first theory is the mechanical or infloating theory, and this was proposed back in the 1920s. 
It's referred to as the classic textbook theory. It's kind of what we were all taught in school. It states that during trauma or surgical manipulation, as pressure increases in the intramedullary space, yellow fat is forced out into the venous circulation where it forms thrombotic masses that can migrate and become occlusive and cause rapid deterioration. The second theory is the biochemical theory, and this was also back in the 20s, suggests an inflammatory cascade occurs when circulating fat emboli are degraded into free fatty acids, which are known to injure pneumocytes and capillaries. It starts locally and quickly becomes systemic, resulting in end organ involvement. The third theory is the newest theory. A little bit of controversy, but it seems like it's pretty well adopted at this point. Proposes that thromboplastin and marrow are released during trauma, which activates the complement system and extrinsic coagulation cascade. And this is via factor seven. The result is intravascular coagulation by fibrin and fibrin degradation products. Platelets adhere to the circulating fatty emboli leading to thromboembolic events. This explains the anemia and thrombocytopenia, which is often seen in FES, and Jamie's patient experienced that. What's interesting is all three of these are correct. So in our opinion, it seems like FES is most likely a combination of all three of these theories. Awesome. Well, you have a textbook mind. So exactly how do we diagnose FES in the OR? The old criteria that when we first started this project, we asked ourselves that question because I feel like as an anesthesia provider, there's a lot of gray area. When Jamie's patient was experiencing these clinical derangements, it's not quickly apparent what your patient is is experiencing and whether or not it's a fatty embolic event. You know, Jamie did a great job troubleshooting and looking back, I think they figured out, yes, that everything that happened in the OR pointed towards a fatty embolic event and that patient did have the fat embolism syndrome. But throughout medical literature, historically there's been three papers written. One was by Gurdon Wilson, one was by Schoenfield, and then I think in the late 80s, early 90s, Lindeck wrote his criteria as well. And those three kind of build upon one another, but a lot of the criteria that these authors presented in the medical literature, we found it to be too subjective. For when a patient's under anesthesia in the operating room, whether or not they have cerebral vascular involvement and feel confused, or whether they're complaining about being short of breath, to us, that doesn't matter because they're intubated. They're under anesthesia. So yeah, we mean, were looking for more exact criteria. Yeah, looking at this, if I were in the case, I'm like, oh, this kid's having a PE, and I wouldn't think to take it a step further necessarily. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's why this was such an interesting case, because it kind of was mysterious, but I think Jamie solved the mystery. Well, and part of Gurdon Wilson's diagnostic criteria which is the gold standard or the classic criteria. They have one major and four minor criteria for the diagnosis of FES. And these, like Chris said, they don't apply to sedated, mechanically ventilated patients. The major criteria are respiratory insufficiency and cerebral involvement, like you said, but also petechial rash. And petechial rash only occur in about 30 to 60% of the time with FES. And then the minor criteria would be tachycardia, fever, jaundice, retinal changes, anemia, thrombocytopenia, 
high ESR and fat microglobinemia. But the petechial rash is a major criteria. So if only 30 to 60% of the patients that have FES have petechiae, that's not going to really fit into Gurdon Wilson's diagnostic criteria if you're looking to use that to help you diagnose FES in your patient. If they don't have a petechial rash, then you probably wouldn't include that in your diagnosis if you were just using that criteria. But I think we're all taught, whether it was nursing school or anesthesia school, that the petechial rash is the big thing to look for. So we all kind of rely on that. And when it happens, we go with our gut instinct of, oh yeah, this is definitely a a fat emboli. But as you just said, most patients, you know, 30 to 60% will have it, which means 70 to maybe 40% won't have it. But in addition to that thought, there was another study done that showed if a particular rash does happen, it could be up to three days later after the event. So our whole point in saying all of this is as a clinician, don't rely on the particular rash to make your, you know, guide your, your clinical care because it, it's not actually that accurate. Yeah, and this patient in this case report never had a petechial rash that we saw. Right, but I'm totally convinced it was definitely the fat embolism syndrome. Yeah, I agree. agree. And Schoenfield's diagnostic criteria, once again, he had a score, like a cumulative score. You had to have greater than five for a positive diagnosis of FES. And if you had petechiae, you automatically had a score of five. <laughs> so he put so, <laughs> a little weight on the petechial rash, which we know is not an accurate indicator. Right. And like you said, it can occur up to three days later. And if you're operating on the next day, that's not going to fall into that criteria either. Right. <clears throat> so that criteria is kind of out as well for just being weighted so heavily for with petechiae, you get five if you have it. And then he also had the lesser weighted criteria was hypoxemia, fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, confusion, which we're not going to see the tachypnea or confusion, and diffuse infiltrates on chest x-ray. We didn't see those. His x-ray was clear, but some patients that you can see on CT or and or x-ray those ground glass opacities. Yeah, and a lot of the books that we read said a high-resolution chest CT, if you see those ground glass opacities, that is the gold standard for diagnosing a pulmonary embolism, which could have came from a fat embolism. Yeah. And then Lindex criteria is the most recent, and we said, what, that was probably from the 1990s. It's the most objective in our mind because... It doesn't rely on the patient having complaints and telling you how they feel. It's things that we, we as clinicians would see, such as a sustained PAAO2, less than 60 millimeters of mercury, sustained PACO2, greater than 55, sustained respiratory rate, greater than 35, after adequate sedation, and an increased work of breathing, which is judged by dyspnea, use of accessory muscles, and tachycardia, and anxiety. So all three of these criteria each offers some guide for us as clinicians to recognize a fat embolism in a patient. But when a patient's on the OR table under anesthesia, none of those are very helpful to us. So Jamie and I, in writing this paper, 
tried to make it beneficial to clinicians in the future, and we came up with our own criteria, kind of accumulation of everything that we read. So, Chris, you have for us some new criteria that we can actually, or that would be more useful. Is this what you're saying? Yes, because as we discussed, most everything in the literature to help guide us is outdated and really doesn't apply to a patient under anesthesia. So Jamie and I worked along with Dr. Tobias, who's the chief of our department and someone I consider way smarter than myself. We kind of put everything that we read together and came up with what we feel like are very objective, relevant criteria that should help any clinician that might be facing a patient who is experiencing a fatty embolic event on the OR table. The first is respiratory. So we said you will see hypoxia, which is we defined as a PaO2 less than 60, while on a FiO2 greater than 60, decreased end-tidal CO2 waveform, either slow and insidious or quickly. On Jamie's patient, it happened very quickly. Worsening pulmonary compliance, and that would be refractory to a bronchospasm treatment. Increased peak airway pressures. Oxygenation index score greater than 8.1, which is an ICU measure they use frequently, which a score greater than 8.1 is indicative of ARDS. Under respiratory, there's also cardiovascular criteria we looked at, such as EKG changes. You can see PEA and or ST segment changes, hemodynamic instability. If you have access to a TEE or TTE and can quickly get that in the room, it may help detect microemboli and decreased systolic function. In addition to respiratory and cardiovascular components, we also included lab and imaging findings. You may see a positive D-dimer greater than 0.5, increased troponin levels, anemia and thrombocytopenia of unexplained origin, macroglobules found in the urine or blood. We discussed particular rash that you may or may not see that. If you do, it's probably going to be on the chest, neck, axilla, conjunctiva, or actually in the mouth on the buccal mucosa. Those seem to be the most common places for people who are developing a particular rash. And the gold standard for objective measurement is a high-resolution chest CT with ground glass opacities. Okay, so it looks like these criteria that you guys came up with do take a little bit from previous theories. Yes. But the difference is we're looking at patients under anesthesia. Right. The, the three authors that published those papers, which those are usually taught in school, Nothing's wrong with those. They just don't really apply to a patient in the operating room who's on the, on the table and who's under anesthesia. So that's why Jamie and I developed our current or our newer criteria. So moving along, is there any way that we can prevent this from happening? There's really no way to prevent it. The diagnosis is made by exclusion for now, and... Preparation, anticipation, and awareness are really the key measures to employ during the, a fracture fixation or a procedure that could potentially have these complications. As far as 
fracture fixation goes, the earlier the better would be helpful. Penny published a paper that said early fixation of fractures decreases the incidence of FES and the size of the reamer also has some implications too. Did that paper say ideally it should be, if a big fracture should be repaired within 10 hours? I think that was the, the number they recommended. I think, yeah, definitely less than 24 okay. hours, if I recall. Yeah, you want to avoid that 24 to 72 hour window. Yeah. So the sooner, yeah. the better. Yeah, and it's the treatment, there's no agreed upon regimen. It's largely supportive. You just need to, if you have this suspicion, then you need to be prepared to give pressors to help with the circulatory collapse, appropriate ventilator support according to whatever the patient needs, maintain adequate circulation and tissue oxygenation, aggressive volume resuscitation with colloid and crystalloids. Albumin binds to the circulating fatty acids, so it will help the patient if they do have a fat embolism and fat embolism syndrome. And open communication between the surgical and anesthesia teams is imperative. You know, you need to let them know what's going on with the patient. It's not appropriate to continue operating while something like this is happening. We need to figure out what's going on first. Continuous monitoring and frequent assessment are important to recognize the acute clinical changes that can occur during the interop setting. And prompt action when there's a high degree of suspicion of fat embolism syndrome is extremely important. So fat embolism syndrome, it's, it's incredibly rare but it is a potentially fatal complication of traumas, major orthopedic surgery, and liposuction. So as a clinician, you should just be cognizant of the population that this could occur in and be prepared to take action very quickly because that will be imperative to achieving a positive clinical outcome for your patient if something like this occurs. Well, thank you, Chris and Jamie. What exactly, what, what are the takeaways from this? Thanks for having us. I think, I'll let Jamie speak as well, but I think one of the biggest takeaways is in order for your patient to have a good outcome, quick recognition of what's happening kind of go with your gut instinct based on everything that we talked about. So, yeah, you have new diagnostic criteria. Yes. For us anesthesia providers. Yes, to help <laughs> in the moment while you are in the operating room with a patient asleep. Hopefully these criteria, they should be beneficial, more beneficial than the old criteria. Yeah, to eliminate some of the gray area associated with recognizing this FES, fat embolism syndrome. So... The gold standard, of course, is careful clinical examination and the other criteria that you could use, but they're not extremely helpful, like we said, when your patient is under anesthesia. So we do have this proposed new diagnostic criteria as a suggestion to use as an objective metric. So 
you could use all of those things, have all of those in your arsenal. And that rapid recognition and treatment are imperative in preventing poor outcomes. So if you have this suspicion and you go through all the criteria, the new suggested criteria are things that you could do in real time while your patient's under anesthesia, as opposed to the other criteria that may or may not be clear or useful to a patient under anesthesia. It will help you quickly recognize and get into action and begin to treat this patient to help prevent a poor outcome and thereby decreasing mortality with this fat embolism syndrome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for stopping by. Thanks for thank having us. Thank you. And sharing with this very interesting paper. We look forward to having everyone again next time. All right. Until then. Thank you for listening to another Dream Team podcast by Elite Anesthesia Education. Please go to our website at EliteAnesthesiaEducation.com and follow the steps to get your continuing education credit. Contact us if you would like to share an interesting case report or have an educational topic suggestion. We hope you will join us again soon.